Good morning, St. Clair. Hello to the three of you. It's going to be a good morning. Um, I also feel a bit intimidated because I was at True City yesterday and heard Jen Arnold speak, and she was phenomenal. So um, I frantically went and rewrote my sermon, so like Jen knocked it out the park. Anyway, just to acknowledge that, if it goes online, you should listen to Jen Arnold's message from True City. It was uh, beautiful, uh, thoughtful, passionate, and uh, very reflective. Um, Yes, so as a church, we're starting into a season in Lent. Uh, That starts this Wednesday, which is Ash Wednesday. And as soon as I say the word Lent, some of you think, oh, this reminds me of the church tradition I grew up in. And some of you think, oh, does that mean I'm not allowed to eat chocolate? because maybe that's the old connotation of Lent. But Lent is a season that the church has adopted throughout history, which is the build-up to Easter. It's 40 days of preparation before we get to Good Friday and Easter weekend. And historically, this was done by the church to remind themselves of Jesus's fasting and time in the wilderness, which was 40 days, which was this time of preparation. And so historically, it was a fast that was done normally with food where people would deny themselves of something so they could stir within them a hunger for who God was. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, this idea of hungering after God. And so this Wednesday starts Lent and over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at a Lent series called Less is More. And we're going to be looking at some of the idols in our culture and how do we fast with God in order to confront some of the idols in our culture and maybe even in our own lives. I think Lent is a really important season in the life of the church. And as a church community, we join, as we've said before, with those throughout history who have practiced this together. When St. Clair started a few years ago, uh, we had a deep passion for what would it look like to be a church that were disciples of Jesus? What does it look like to apprentice in the way of Jesus? And I sat down with a friend of mine who's a mentor. He's a very wise man, very thoughtful, not very demonstrative. He's one of those brilliant wise sages who just sits and ponders very well. And I said to him, if you're me and you're thinking about discipleship and you're planting a church, where do you start? And then he did that beautiful Yoda thing that sages do. He just stroked his chin and pondered. And then he said, Matt, it always starts with hunger. Do we desire, do we have this deep passion to want to know Christ and be formed in his image? Now, I do want to say this isn't hype and trying to stir ourselves up and convince ourselves of this. So it's not this idea of I have to do more or or be outgoing or I need to look like I'm passionate. But I think it's this deep inner longing for the things of God and his kingdom. And as we're praying together about this series, Psalm 63 felt like the right kind of inroad into the series as we look at this together. I do want to say Psalm 63 is beautifully poetic. There's so much in there. So I won't be touching on every part of it which I feel sad, but the sermon would have been about five hours long. So I'm going to move that around just so we can look at this together. But Psalm 63 has been a psalm that has resonated with me deeply over the years. Uh, One of the reasons is it was my youth group's favorite psalm. I'd love to tell you that's because they were spiritual, but I have a confession this morning. So it's not one of those weird confessions. It is that Matthew is not my first name. 
Ooh, this is getting good. Actually, the, my first name is Ernest. I know. You can now feel sorry for me. My parents didn't like me as a child. And so my youth group thought it was hilarious. We'd have these times of prayer and they would come to me and say, Matt, when we were praying, this, this scripture just came to mind. Uh, I, just, I was praying a lot and I just think God wants to encourage you with this. And I was like, oh, that's so great. And without fail, they, even though I'd fail for it every time, they would say, Psalm 63, earnestly I seek you, <laughs> which was a terrible gag. Um, so I'm sharing that with you, basically to shame them because they were mean to me. So, so as we look this morning, let's look at Psalm 63. But I think it is a psalm that reflects this idea of hunger and thirsting after God. Psalm 63 starts out like this. You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. The psalm starts out with David acknowledging God as both deeply relational and deeply holy. David is saying, I have this personal relationship with this covenantal God who created the universe. For David, God is personal. Not just an idea, not just a religious system, but someone he's in relationship with. You are my God. This echoes back to the Lord's Prayer where Jesus says to his followers, here's how you start before you get to anything else, our Father who art in heaven. Everything else flows from relationship. Whether it's your kingdom come, give us this day our daily bread, forgive me as I forgive others. The starting place of all of it is deep relationship with the Father, that we know our identity as children of God. And that's how David starts. You are my God, but also you are actually God. I think that's really important for us to remember. In a world that would say, you personally are your own God. The culture around us continues to remind us, you are the highest authority in your life. As Jesus followers, we would say that is actually not the case. We follow the one who is greater than us. As the scripture would say, what is man that you are mindful of him? Because God, you are actually enthroned in your glory and your goodness. We sung earlier, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. That is not just a nice refrain. That is the one who we enter into the presence of. Isaiah, in that passage of scripture that we read, says it like this. I am ruined. I've encountered God and it has ruined me because I realize my own humanity and I acknowledge God's deity. This is not something that we just struggle with. Uh, people throughout history have struggled with it because this is the very fall of creation. When God creates mankind in Genesis, in the garden, the scripture says everything is very good. And the first temptation that Adam and Eve come across is the serpent saying to Adam and Eve, oh, if you take this fruit, you will be like God. Actually, did God really say you shouldn't eat the fruit? It's already pushing back on humanity's idea of who God is. And, they, and the serpent says to them, you will be like God, which is very ironic because they've actually been created within the image of God. So they are like God. And what the serpent is saying is, why don't you be a ruler of your own destiny? I've said this many times before. My friend says, the fall is the first declaration of independence. I can do this by myself. And humanity ever since has said that. 
God, you do your thing over there and I'll be totally in charge of my life. And what David is saying here, he's acknowledging, oh God, you're personal, you're covenantal, but you're also God, the one who stand in reverence and awe of. God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. David, people say, is this metaphorical? Most scholars believe David is actually in the desert itself when he's writing this. This isn't just a word picture. And there's a few times in David's life where he finds himself in the desert. But most scholars, and I would tend to agree with them, believe that this is the time when David is actually on the run because his son Absalom is coming to take over his kingdom. There's been a military coup in Israel, and what would happen is Absalom would sit at the city gate, and people, this is in 2 Samuel 15, I think it is, people would come to the city gate, and they would bring their complaints before the king, but Absalom would sit at the city gates, hear their complaints, and then say to them, oh, I totally see that. I can't believe the king is doing that. If I was king, this is what I would do. So eventually a revolt and a coup rises up for Absalom, David's own son, to overthrow him in his kingship. And so it says David flees from Jerusalem and finds himself in the desert. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 15, 22 to 25. I think it actually should be on the screen. Hopefully it's there, Joy. Says this, David said to Ittai, go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families were with him. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved to the wilderness. Zadok was there too and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God and Abithar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. This is the thing, the ark contains the presence of God himself. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. David has been stripped of everything. He's in the desert by himself. His son is ready to overthrow him. And in that place of having everything stripped away, his cry is, God, you are my God. I thirst for you. I long for you. Where do we go when there's nowhere else to go? In our life, when it feels like things have fallen away or been stripped away, Where do we go and who are we in those moments? This story has always been interesting to me because David, this is the paraphrase. I've been king, but if God no longer wants me to king, be king, that's okay with me. What if the things that define us, the things we hold on to are stripped away? Do we still know who we are? in these moments? Where does our identity rest? Is it in the things that we do or is it in who God says 
we are? Which voices do we listen to when all has been stripped back? We said it before last year in our series on the wilderness. Sometimes we're led into the wilderness and it is a good thing for us. Hosea 2 verse 14 says, Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness. This is God talking about Israel and speak tenderly to her. We said it last time. Sometimes we think the wilderness is really bad. And if we're in it, we must have done something wrong. And our desperate attempt is to get out of the wilderness and we try everything we can. But what if, just like Jesus, after his baptism, the spirit leads him into the wilderness. What if God has led us there so he can strip all things back to remind us of where our foundation actually lies? See, I think to create a hunger, this might sound very obvious, we actually need to be hungry. We live in a world of such comfort that sometimes I don't even think we know we actually need to be hungry. I shared this a few times. It was deeply profound to me, so I'm going to do it again. I was in Uganda a few years ago. We met with a bunch of pastors. We were talking about prayer. In the middle of this, we were giving some, these Hamilton pastors were giving brilliant teaching on prayer, and we were going back and forth, and finally one of them put their hand up and said, do you mind if I ask you something? And we all said, sure. And he said, you talk about the Lord's Prayer and praying for your daily bread, but surely you walk over to your fridge and it's full of food. So why do you need God? We literally don't know where our next meal's coming from. So we're always hungry for him. This season of Lent, we refrain from certain things so we can actually stir within us a hunger. David is in the desert and he's saying, I am thirsty because I am parched. Sometimes I think we need to know our hunger and thirst in order for God to fulfill that. Verse two, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. In this moment of hunger, David looks back to remember the time where he's experienced God himself. Sometimes we're in that place of need of God in our life. Sometimes we need to look back in our life and remember where God has been faithful to us. I'm not a journaler at all, but a few years ago I did journal. Sometimes I open up these places where I've written about who God is and what he's done in my life. David here is saying, I remember you, I've experienced you and encountered you. And I need to remember that again, that you are good and you are faithful, despite sometimes what I see around me. Sometimes in our lives, we need to remind ourselves why we followed God in the first place. What was it that drew us to him? A few years ago, I met my wife. I was working for YWAM in England. And I totally remember the first time. I didn't tell her I was going to do this. I should have done this. Um, I remember the first time I met her and she introduced herself as Jen from Canada. And I totally remember thinking, I love Canada. What a great place. Uh, I think that might be my future somewhere. So I had this moment where I was captivated by meeting my wife. But our vows that we made together have kept us and held us in that moment. See, there was this initial meeting that overwhelmed me. And yet our, faith, God, our faithfulness, just like God's faithfulness, has kept us going with these vows 
that we have made. But this initial meeting was transformative. And it's the same with God. There was something when I first met Jesus that actually captivated me. This wasn't just an intellectual process of saying, I need to follow God rationally. Something about God captivated my heart and my mind. And I thought, that's who I want to follow. St. Augustine says it like this. Late have I loved you, O beauty ever ancient, ever new. Late have I loved you. You were within me, but I was outside. And it was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness, I plunged into the lovely things which you created. You were with me, but I was not with you. Created things kept me from you. Yet if they had not been in you, they would have not been at all. You called, you shouted, you broke through my deafness. You flashed, you shone, you dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath and now I pant for you. I have tasted you, now I hunger and thirst for more. You touched me and I burned for your peace. David is saying the exact same thing. I have seen you. Your love, David will go and say, is better than life itself. God, something about you has so captivated me that you are worth everything I have got. Sometimes being a pastor is an interesting thing. I became a pastor because honestly, I just really loved Jesus. I didn't know what else to do with my life and I kept feeling this call. I'm a reluctant pastor. I'm very much the Jonah of pastoring. Like, oh no, I can't do that. So I ran away for many years. But I basically did this because I just love Jesus. But here's the thing, pastoring, can I honestly believe make you a better follower of Jesus or actually a much worse one? Because as Jen said beautifully in her talk yesterday, sometimes the one we're following, our focus and attention can start to move towards the thing we're actually doing. And this thing of the church becomes so overwhelming and all you can think about is the church and it consumes you. And just like sadly many friends of mine, it can actually chew you up and spit you out. And many friends who started out with the best of intention, the best people, way better pastors than me who love Jesus and are now not even walking with Jesus. And every day I pray, God, would you remind me why I follow you? Would you captivate my heart again like Augustine? I drew in breath and now I pant for you. I've tasted you. Now I hunger and thirst for more. I'll praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be satisfied with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Out of David's longing for God and out of this reminding himself of who he first met, David's response is worship. With singing lips, I will praise you. See, sometimes for Jesus' followers, worship is an act of defiance and rebellion against the world. Despite our circumstance, remember David has been stripped of everything. He reminds himself of who God is and then says, my own response is to worship. With singing lips, I will praise you. Sometimes passion stirs within us, praise, despite what is going on 
around us. But when we know who God is, it stirs within us a desire to worship. How can we not want to worship when we understand the goodness and greatness of God? I've been reading through Exodus, and there's this really funny moment where the, um, it's also deeply profound, it's also funny to me, but the uh, Israelites have just escaped through the Red Sea. We see Miriam singing, and at the end, this is Exodus 15, verse 19, it says this. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and rider have been hurled into the sea. When the Israelites have been rescued, their first response is, we have to have a dance party and celebrate. Do you notice as well, he says they had tambourines, like they've just fled. They've had to get out of Egypt really quickly. And their first response was, grab your clothes and don't forget the tambourine. Like, I don't know what's going on there. But they're, because they're a people of praise and worship. God's people have always been a people of praise and worship. Their first response to being rescued is, we probably should worship God because he's the one who rescued us. When you know you've been rescued like that, it transforms your life and you want to praise and worship. So tambourines next week at St. Clair. <laughs> or oh, could I know the connotation that brings of church when I grew up with tambourines. Um, on my bed, I remember you. I think of you for the watches of the night because you are my help. I cling in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you, your right. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you, your right hand upholds me. The watches of the night, this is a military term of people who would stay up over different periods of time. There are maybe three watches of the night uh, in Jewish culture that they would say the troops would stay up to stay awake so no one would invade them. But often it was a solitary position where you would be up by yourself in the middle of the night. David says, I remember you when I'm by myself and I have nothing else to think about. When you're by yourself, all alone in solitude and silence, who or what do you think about? When all the voices have been stilled, whose voice do you listen to? A friend of mine said they went on a silent retreat uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was about 48 hours of silence, and they said it was horrendous because um, they've never done that before. But she had a really interesting line. She said, I've never done this before. It was terrifying. I love people. I'm social. So the thought of doing that. And then she said, it was almost like in these 48 hours, God moved from being a boss to a friend. Because she said... Normally with God, it's like, here's the things I would like you to do. You know, like the genie in the lamp. I was going to say Will Smith style. Oh, Aladdin is coming. But they're like the genie in the lamp, cultural reference. Um, and that's sometimes how we view God. But she said, it moved from that because I realized I've got all this time with just me and God. And he moved from this to-do list of here's the things I want you to do, God, to we've got a lot to talk about because I have all this space and this time. Do you have space in your life for silence and solitude with just you and God? And if that thought terrifies you, what is God trying to say to you? 
I honestly believe one of the greatest challenges to our walk with Jesus is distraction. Because we distract ourselves so much to actually be present to the thing God wants to bring up. And that's sometimes because it's painful and hard. Because what will God actually say to us if we give him time? One of Rollheiser, one of my favorite Christian authors, says this. It's a bit of a long quote, but it's so brilliant, I couldn't cut it out. Thomas Merton once said that the biggest spiritual problem of our time is efficiency, work, and pragmatism. Henry Nouwen wrote eloquently on how our greed for experience and the restlessness, hostility, and fantasy it generates can block solitude, hospitality, and prayer in our lives. What each of these authors and countless others are saying is that we, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It's not we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like these. It's just that we're too habitually preoccupied to have any of them show up on our radar. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. I remember you in the watches of the night. I'm not here to guilt you this morning because that doesn't help. (laughs) I'm here to call within us a fresh, a hunger and a desire for who God is. And so as we talk about Psalm 63, I just have a couple of really simple, practical things as we step into this Lent series. How do we create this hunger and desire for who God is? Some of you are here thinking, yes, I am hungry and passionate and I deeply desire God. Some of you are honestly here saying, I just don't know. One, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore or even if I do. And therefore, I just don't know if I'm even hungry for God himself. I just feel tired and exhausted and weary. And so I want to acknowledge both of those people here and just say, here's what I think is in the psalm and here's from my experience as we enter Lent, a couple of just practices that allow us to stir within us a hunger. The first is prayer. Augustine has a beautiful line that I've quoted many times here. He says, God, would you place salt on my lips that I would thirst for you? Sometimes the best thing we can say is, God, I don't even know if I am hungry. Would you stir within me a hunger for who you are? We confess that before God and we take time in prayer and quiet before him. What if, this is something I've tried to do because I was so deeply distracted. What if we took 10 minutes at the start of our day if we're able to just have a time of silence before God. Maybe start with a minute and work your way up because that's what I had to do. I think it was actually 20 seconds initially, but I moved my way up. But take time in silence and then just read together or by yourself, but maybe over the month together, Psalm 63 every morning for Lent. Next week, we're going to give out some cards that'll actually be a helpful guide to pray through Psalm 63. But we're going to ask St. Clair over the time of Lent to just pray through Psalm 63 together and allow the Spirit to work. The second thing is maybe to consider fasting during Lent. Throughout the scripture, God's people fasted. It was just one of the practices they did. 
throughout their history. Now, normally when we talk about fasting, and fasting at its basic level is to refrain from food for a spiritual purpose. Now, in Lent, there might be something else you want to refrain from, but historically it was specifically food that God's people would refrain from so that when you felt that hunger, it would remind you of God and remind you to pray. Now, I know when I say fasting, some people are like, oh, Matt, that seems like Old Testament. That's Old Covenant. We're in the New Covenant now. We've been rescued by Jesus. So we're not into that religious stuff anymore. Thanks, Mary. We're not really religious like that. But I know people who religiously watch Netflix every single night and religiously do CrossFit and religiously check their phone. So it's funny that we say, oh, that's a religious thing. Because actually, I think we're religious people because we're people of habit. And so sometimes God brings with to us a practice that will actually help shape us and form us. And actually, what's funny is throughout the New Testament, God's people are people of fasting. In Mark 9, 29, when the disciples are trying to cast out this demon from someone and it doesn't seem to be going well, which is a whole other story, Jesus shows up and says, oh, this actually only comes out through prayer and fasting. As in this thing we most long for, for God's kingdom to come, you will need to pray and you will need to fast for God to bring breakthrough in that area. In Acts 13, when Barnabas and Paul are being sent out by the church at Antioch, it says they pray and fast over a period of time of discernment together. So out the scripture, we see God's people fasting. So at the back there, there's actually going to be a sign up because here's what I believe. If you're like me, some of these things you just cannot do by yourself. I always listen to a sermon like this, I'm like, right, I'm totally going to fast, hunker down, and then I convince myself I'm going to do it. And then about three hours in, I'm like, this is disastrous. I need some Doritos or something like that. I think to do practices well, you actually need a community to do it with. And so at the back, there's going to be a sign-up. And if you feel that you want to actually participate in fasting this Lent, we're going to encourage you to write your name down because we're actually going to send you an email each week just to remind you that there are other people in this community doing it. Now, some of you, it may be food. For some of you, health-wise, that may not be a good idea. So it may be something else you want to fast. But what is something that if you stripped it away from your life because it has maybe a hold on you, would that allow for God's presence to be at work in you? And through you. So just to consider you uh, doing that. Just so you know, the leadership team for the past few weeks has already started to fast and pray for our community because there's some real challenges for people that are really struggling in our community. And that scripture from Mark came to mind. This will only come out through prayer and fasting. There are people we just need to lift in prayer. And so our leadership team have already started to pray and fast together. We're going to transition into a time of communion together. And it's interesting because I said, I'm not here to guilt you, but here's what I love about that psalm. As David is hungering for God, what we find out throughout the narrative of scripture is God is hungering for us. It's this beautiful reciprocal thing. Like Augustine tried to say, you created a desire in me for you and now I long for you even more. 
And so as we do this, this isn't a guilt-inducing thing. This is a recognition that God is hungering to meet with us because he most desires that. And then in turn, it stirs within us a hunger for who he is. And we gather around this table each week to remind ourselves that this is the people of God's meal. And that Jesus is the bread of life and the only one who can truly satisfy us. And so in a place of hunger, we realize, Jesus, you are the one I most need. And that's what this meal does each time we gather around the table. The table is open for us all to come. This isn't just for the spiritual saints and the superheroes. This is for us who say, I desperately need God in my life. And so Jesus instituted this meal for his followers. It said in the scripture that on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, eat this each time you gather in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood that was shed for you. Each time you gather as my people, drink this in remembrance of me and what I have done for you. 